Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for this day that we can open up your word, look into it, and understand it more clearly. I pray that you'd be with me today in the words that I say, in the truths that I seek to convey. I pray that they would be accurate and true to your word, and that your spirit would apply them uh, in ways that I am unable to. So in your name I pray, amen. Well, I have a little bit of good news, bad news this morning. The bad news is I have a lingering cough, which I'm trying to beat, but having a hard time with. The good news is I don't end up coughing a lot when I'm not talking. But the bad news is I'm teaching Sunday school this morning, so I'm going to be talking a lot. So I apologize in advance for any coughing. Um, just I'm doing my best to get over that, but so far my uh, attempts have been unsuccessful. But today, we are going to be looking at the second of the three synoptic gospels, which is the gospel of Mark. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. And synoptic comes from two words in Greek that means with and seeing. So it's almost like seeing together. The synoptic gospel means that um, they are coming from the same perspective. They're looking at it the same way. And you can see that in Mark because 90% of the content of Mark is included in Luke or Matthew. And so in, in some ways it bears a large resemblance to those other books. But it also stands apart from them in some important ways that we're going to mention uh, this morning. So first of all, let's talk about how we know that Mark, who's name is on the gospel, how we know that he is the one that authored the gospel. Uh, the, this gospel has been consistently attributed to Mark since the second or third century, um, and Mark is mentioned several times in scripture. His name is Mark or John Mark. In Acts 12.12, 12, we find that the church had gathered at the house of Mary to pray for the release of Peter, and Mary was the mother of John Mark. In addition, in Colossians 4.10, we find that Barnabas, who travels with Paul on several missionary journeys, is actually John Mark's cousin. So he's mentioned several times in Scripture. And the story of Peter being freed from prison and then going to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, shows that Peter and Mark knew each other. In addition, in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter mentions that Mark is with him at the time of the writing of his letter. And so this shows us that while Mark was not an apostle... He was an early believer who worked closely with Peter. And the church fathers from the second century on confirmed this. Many people look at the gospel of Mark and they see Mark having conversations and listening to the sermons of Peter and then compiling them into the gospel of Mark as we have it today. So some have even said that you could look at this gospel as the gospel of Peter. Not that he wrote it, but that the large majority of its content was based on Mark's conversations with Peter. Now, Mark is also known for his travels with Paul. He joined Paul uh, and his cousin Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey, but he deserted them not long after. That's in Acts 13. And so that actually led to a split between Paul and Barnabas in kind of their ministry priorities uh, for Paul's second missionary journey. Because Barnabas wanted to take Mark along with him. He saw, he saw kind of a, a growth or maturity in Mark that Paul didn't see. I think Paul was disappointed that Mark had... Uh, abandoned them on that first journey for whatever reason. And so Paul ended up taking Silas, whereas Barnabas went with Mark. But then later on in Paul's ministry, we can see that he has uh, changed his opinion of Mark. In 2 Timothy 4.11, he says uh, Mark is very useful to him. So initially, Paul and, and Mark kind of got off to a bad start, but Mark matures over the course of this first century and grows into someone that Paul is very confident in. 
Now, Mark does not mention himself specifically in his gospel, but it's possible that the account in Mark 14, verses 51 and 52, is Mark. And these verses describe a young man who's running away from Christ's arrest, and he escapes only by leaving his tunic behind and running away naked. And we don't know for sure, but there's, there doesn't seem to be a lot of other good reasons why this story would be included, unless it was talking about Mark. So he's not named, we can't say for sure, but it seems like Mark may have included this to say, I was there, and I responded wrong. I don't know why you would include that about someone unless it was maybe self-deprecating. And you can see that about Peter as well, throughout the Gospel of Mark. Peter is singled out in a lot of different instances, and they're not always good. And again, I think that came from Mark talking with Peter, and Peter acknowledging, yeah, I didn't always do this right. I don't think Mark was just trying to take pot shots at this guy that he didn't know. I think Peter acknowledged that he didn't always react the right way. So to sum up, all the church fathers ascribed this book to Mark, and his writing was counted as authoritative and canonical because of his close connection with Peter, and even with, because of his connection with Paul. And by the way, ascribing this book to someone like Mark, rather than someone more prominent, is actually more evidence that Mark actually wrote it. Because there would be no reason to ascribe this falsely to someone kind of of lower stature like Mark. The only reason to say that Mark wrote it is if Mark actually wrote it. There'd be no other reason for someone to falsely ascribe it to Mark. Now, we don't know exactly when Mark was written, but it likely was written in the 50s or 60s AD. Uh, Mark would have had ample time to spend with Peter to gather information and hear him tell about his time with Jesus. And many think that Mark was the first gospel that was written. And so a date in the 50s or early 60s would give enough time for Matthew and Luke to use it as source material for their own gospels to build off of. Now, last week we said that Matthew was written to a primarily Jewish audience. He's kind of writing the next chapter in the Old Testament and showing how Jesus fulfills all of these strands of prophecy and promises from the Old Testament. Matthew was a Jewish man, and he employed a great deal of Jewish history and scripture to show that Jesus was the long-hoped-for Messiah, the son of Abraham who brings blessing to the world, and the son of David who reigns sorry, who will reign as king in the kingdom of God. But Mark is primarily written to Gentiles, specifically Roman Gentiles. And that doesn't mean that only Jews could read Matthew and only Gentiles could read Mark, but in general, the, um, the audience was written for more of a Roman audience. And several times throughout the book, Mark explains a Jewish concept with a Latin term that's transcribed in Greek. He doesn't assume that the reader has a great deal of knowledge about Jewish culture or history, but explains it as uh, something wouldn't be apparent to a first century Roman. So Mark's audience is slightly different than Matthew's, but his purpose is very similar. And you can see that in the first verse. So if you haven't opened up to Mark, go ahead and open up to chapter 1. The first verse in Mark says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the purpose of Mark is to present the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Mark is really an evangelistic book. It's meant to show who Jesus is and what he has done. Mark says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the divine Messiah. And Mark shows the first half, sorry, Mark spends the first half of his book showing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And once he has shown that, he turns to his second objective, which is to show that Jesus must suffer and die. 
And Jesus is the suffering servant promised in Isaiah. And Mark quotes Isaiah specifically in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, which we'll read in a second. Chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. And then chapter 11, verse 17. And he alludes to Isaiah in other places as well. For instance, in Mark 10, 45, you really see hints of Isaiah and the suffering servant. And this is kind of a summary verse for the entire book of Mark. It says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in Isaiah, from chapters 42 to 53, God speaks about the servant that he will use to redeem his people. The work of the servant culminates in chapter 53 with the description of the suffering-filled atonement. And as Mark references Isaiah and speaks about Jesus' suffering, he's painting this picture that Jesus is that suffering servant. And he has come to redeem his people. And so as Mark describes these twin truths, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, and Jesus is the suffering servant, he's not just trying to prove these points, but he's also very explicitly calling for a response. The first words of Jesus in the book of Mark are in verse 15. And it says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And that is really the purpose of Mark, is to get people to respond in faith and repentance. Mark wants you to be confronted with the person and work of Jesus and be moved to respond to him. That's the purpose of Mark. Now, one of the other really interesting things about Mark is that as he focuses on these truths and as he calls people to repentance, he does not waste time. One of the biggest marks of Mark is his urgency. His urgency. Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, and he doesn't speak about Jesus' birth as Matthew and Luke do. Rather, he just jumps right into the beginning of his ministry. The first verse says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Boom. Topic introduced, big idea stated, let's go. He just jumps right into it, almost as if it's in the middle of a story. And the most frequently used word in the book of Mark is immediately. He uses this word 42 times in 16 chapters, and it's only used nine more times in the rest of the New Testament books. So it it stands out in the book of Mark that almost between between most of the stories, he says, this happened, and then immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened. He's just saying, boom, 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 we're going on to the next thing. He's not wasting any time. And this doesn't mean that he just wants to hurry up and get it over with. He's not like a tour guide who just has 10 minutes left before the museum closes. He's not just trying to rush people through because time is up and he wants to go do something else. His urgency really shows how important this message is, that he's not going to waste any time in getting this good news out to people. And so the urgency of Mark, as well as the two main themes, are really evident in the first verses. So let me read verse 1 again, as well as verses 2 and 3. Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So the first thing that Mark does after identifying his story as the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is to quote from Isaiah. And specifically, he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, in reference to the one who will go before the Messiah. 
And this quotation also has material from Malachi 3.1, which built off of that prophecy in Isaiah. Mark quotes these verses in order to introduce an important character to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and that is John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, as some people call him. John the Baptist was not a Baptist in like the current denominational term that we think of. He wasn't that he baptized believers instead of baptizing infants. It just means that John was the guy who baptized people. And so Mark 1 verses 4 through 8 says, it kind of describes his ministry. It says, John appeared, and by the way, that's very Mark. He just kind of pops out of nowhere. He appeared. Uh, that's his urgency coming through. So John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea <coughs> and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, John is one of the most intriguing and misunderstood characters in the New Testament. But remember, the Gospels take place in the Old Testament era. This isn't the era of the church. This is still before Jesus has come and died on the cross. There is no new covenant yet. Uh, the Bible was just the Old Testament. And John is really a figure who kind of spans the Old Testament into the New Testament. He's one of the final, he is the final prophet of the Old Testament era, but he's preaching a message that applies to the followers of Jesus. And so Mark identifies John as the one who will go before the Messiah, which has been prophesied before John is the messenger in the wilderness who prepares the way for Jesus, like Isaiah talked about. And he proves to be a recurring character throughout the book. And we can't look at every example, but there's just a few that are kind of important. In chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, we read about John's death in the form of a flashback. We're, we're several chapters into the story of Jesus, but as his miracles and as his apostles' miracles start to gain more prominence, it, the scene switches to Herod who's the son of the Herod who tried to put Jesus to death. And it shows that Herod thinks that all these miracles are the work of John the Baptist come back from the dead. Because before this, he had uh, had John the Baptist beheaded. Now, some people, or John think, or sorry, Herod thinks that John the Baptist is raised from the dead and is doing all of these miracles, but other people think that it's Elijah who has come. And both of these seem kind of odd. Why would he think that John the Baptist is raised from the dead and is doing miracles? And why would other people ascribe that to Elijah? Where did these thoughts come from? Well, Elijah and his connection with John the Baptist comes actually because of Malachi chapter 4. In verses 5 and 6, Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And so there was an expectation that Elijah or someone like Elijah would come and instigate repentance in Israel before the day of the Lord came. So that's why some people looked at Jesus' work and thought that Elijah had come to fulfill that prophecy. And John and Elijah are also linked in chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. Because the disciples come and they ask Jesus a question about Elijah. And this is right after the transfiguration when Elijah had appeared to validate the ministry of Jesus. 
These verses say, And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And so what Jesus is saying here is that Elijah had already come. He's saying that John the Baptist was the one like Elijah who went before the Son of Man to prepare his ministry. And like many of us today, it was confusing to the disciples of the time because they didn't know Scripture and how it applied to John the Baptist well. But properly understood, John was the promised messenger coming in the footsteps of Elijah who prepared the way for Jesus specifically by preaching that message of repentance. And I think that's why John the Baptist is prominent in Mark because of that message of repentance. And that's so much lined up with Mark's point for his book. And this helps us understand John's baptism. Because John baptized people as a sign of their repentance. And that was in preparation for Jesus who could actually remove their sins. And he knew that Jesus would come after him. That's why he said, someone's coming after me and his ministry is going to be way better than anything that I can do. What I'm doing now is to symbolize your repentance uh, for his coming. And he taught that his baptism would be replaced by a better baptism, which would be done by the Holy Spirit. And he says that in chapter 1, verse 8. So then in verse 9, when Jesus is introduced and is baptized by John, and the Holy Spirit descends on him, the reader should instantly realize, oh, that's the one that John is talking about. He's here. And John has served his purpose of setting the stage for Jesus and transitioning into his ministry. So then a few verses later, Mark tells us that John has been arrested, and the focus of the rest of the book shifts squarely to Jesus. And that's where verses 14 and 15 say, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So verses 1 through 15 are a type of introduction to the book of Mark. You you see that this is a book of the gospel. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And he is going to come to be the suffering servant. John has prepared the way and is calling people for repentance. And now Jesus is on the scene as that one who says, Believe in me and follow me. Turn from your sins. So then Mark goes into the next seven or eight chapters of focusing on Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's interesting to note that what makes up the majority of the content of these chapters is Jesus' actions. There's, there's some sections of him teaching and showing parables, but that isn't as much of a priority as it is in Matthew or Luke. Mark focuses on what Jesus does. And like we said before, Mark has a lot of urgency. So it makes sense that he would focus on what Jesus did. He's, he's showing us the action, and it's very action-packed and quick-moving. And Jesus demonstrates that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, through all of these events. He shows his divine power by casting out a demon in chapter 1. And this astonished the crowd and displayed authority over the spiritual realm. He also shows his power over the physical realm by healing Peter's mother-in-law, as well as the diseases of many in Capernaum. And then he heals a leper, a paralytic, and a man with a withered hand, all in the first three chapters. He also heals those who are blind and deaf and mute, he casts out more demons, and he goes from city to city, healing many. And all of this showed that Jesus 
was different. It showed that Jesus was different. He held a special authority over the spiritual and physical world. And he was doing things that normal humans can't do. And Mark is, is very consistent in recording the reaction of all of the people who were there. The people were amazed. They were astonished. And they marveled at Jesus, even as they were confused and fearful of what he was doing. They really didn't know what to do with Jesus. But throughout the first eight chapters, Jesus lays out his message and calls people to believe. And throughout these chapters, he's met with that confusion and fear and unbelief. In chapter 4, he calms a storm, which is something that only God can do. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And it says that they were filled with fear and asked one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I think they may have been aware of Psalm 104 verse 7, which describes God doing to the storm what Jesus has just done. I think they may have had that connection in their mind and said, who is this that he just did something that only God can do? And when the disciples ask, who is this, the reader should be asking the same question. And the answer is that Jesus is the divine Messiah who has come to earth with authority. And the response that the reader should have is that we should believe in who Jesus is and then repent of our sins. If we see Jesus for who he is, that should move us to a response of faith. And when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then walks on the water just after, the message is the same. Jesus has supernatural power over nature. We shouldn't doubt him. In Mark 6.48, it says that Jesus was going to pass by the disciples. And that's the same phrase that God used in Exodus 33.22 when he said that he would pass by Moses to show him his glory. So then when the disciples recognized Jesus... Jesus says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And in Greek, that phrase, it is I, could also be rendered, I am. Which again, it calls back to that story of God leading the people out of Egypt. And in its, Mark is claiming deity for Jesus Christ. He's using all of the language that has described God in the Old Testament and saying, he's here. This is Jesus. This is the Son of God. And again, we're, we're given the response of the disciples as kind of emblematic of how we should respond. And it says they were utterly astounded. This should surprise us. This is something that has never been done before and is unexpected. But up to this point, the disciples' hearts were hardened. It says this in verse 52 in that story. And this is a common theme in Mark. Mark is calling for people to respond and to believe and to repent, but he acknowledges that many have their hearts hardened. And only God can change hearts and give new life. And we see that, that Jesus acknowledges that. But I think Mark highlights this hardness of heart as to confront those who are hard-hearted. He's saying, look at all of this very clear evidence. Look at these astonishing things that Jesus has done. How could you be hard-hearted about this? How could you not turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ? And so he's convicting people of their hard-heartedness. But then comes chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. Go ahead and turn there. This is a turning point in the book of Mark. Because after showing who he is for the first eight chapters, Jesus tests his disciples. He says, how well have you been paying attention? So he asks them, who do the people say that I am? And they reply, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah or one of the prophets. And then he asks them, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter is the one who responds. Again, I think this would be Mark in talking to Peter. He would have given them the specific account that I was actually the one who piped up. Kind of an interesting detail about Peter. And Peter says, you are the Christ. He says, I believe that you are the Messiah, who you say you are. And this is exactly how Mark started his gospel. He said it was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ meaning Messiah. And so the first mission of Mark is complete. He has shown that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is God and man who has come to save the world. And finally the disciples get it. But just like Mark often does, he quickly moves on because he has more things to tell us about. And so after Peter's confession, Mark's, Mark's focus shifts to presenting Christ as the suffering servant. And the very next verse after this section, verse 31 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So Jesus wanted his disciples to know that he was the Messiah, but he didn't want them to be under any delusion as to what that meant. He was not the king who was going to come and overthrow the political power structures of the day, like many of the Jews may have wanted. Jesus had authority over demons and sickness and time and distance and the entire physical realm, but he was not going to use that authority the way that they expected. He was not riding in on a white horse to solve all the problems that the Jews had as the, the highest priority in their mind, which namely was the Roman occupation. Instead, Jesus was coming, humbly riding on a donkey, to be that suffering servant and to die on the cross. He was going to establish himself as king by suffering, dying on a cross, and then raising from the dead. And this would have also flown in the face of the Roman idea of a king as well. The suffering servant king was not what the Romans thought of when they thought of their Caesar, the conqueror, the victor. Their king was anything but a servant. And so Mark was intentionally showing Jesus in a way that would ruffle the feathers of his Roman readers, and I think would still ruffle feathers of people today. Who is this leader, the king of the world, who is going to be a servant and suffer and die? And Mark wants us to respond to this suffering servant, so again, he shows us the response of the disciples. Peter, who has just confessed his faith that Jesus is the Messiah, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. And this is where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He was showing that, the, that opposition to Jesus' ministry as the suffering servant was actually motivated by Satan. He was saying, no, this is not right. I need to do this. And in verse 33, Jesus says, You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. He's showing them that his purpose of being the suffering servant was higher than the purpose of the disciples. And then in verse 34, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And so this is a drastic call for faith and repentance. And it's based solely on who Jesus is and what he has come to do. The only person who can make it worth losing your own life is the Messiah, the suffering servant who gave his own life to give you a new life and true life. And so the second half of Mark begins with Jesus telling his disciples that he would suffer, die, and then rise again. That's in chapter 8, verse 31. 
But as you continue reading, you find this repeated. Go over to chapter 9, verse 30. It says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they go over to chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And so Mark highlights these predictions of Jesus to show his focus on Christ's suffering. Jesus was trying to show his disciples what was about to happen in order to prepare them for what would truly happen to Jesus. And they reacted with confusion and fear and amazement. And they also reacted with pride. After each of those second two predictions by Jesus, the disciples began bickering about who would be greatest in the coming kingdom. And Jesus uses the second of these as an opportunity to describe what it means to be truly great and what the greatness of the suffering servant king would really lie in, why he came to earth. And this is where we find Mark 10, verse 43 to 45. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as ransom for many. So Jesus is saying that he is the suffering servant who came to serve others by giving his life as a ransom for them. And following him means humbling yourself to receive his gift of life, and then turning from your sin of pride to serve God and serve others out of love. So chapters 8 through 10 contain these pointed messages about Christ's suffering. And then from chapters 11 to 15, we see the description of the Passion Week. So from chapter 8 to 10 in those three predictions, and then 11 to 15, that makes up the bulk of the second half of Mark. And it's all focused on Jesus going to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. It's interesting that essentially from Peter's confession on, Jesus ceases traveling around to different villages in Galilee in the north of Israel and begins a journey that goes directly to Jerusalem and to the cross. And everything that Jesus predicted in chapters 8, 9, and 10 come to pass in chapters 14 and 15. Jesus is betrayed, he's condemned and beaten, and then crucified on the cross. He has fulfilled his mission as the suffering servant. And as Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When Jesus died on the cross, when he fulfilled the ministry of the suffering servant, he was taking on that identity from Isaiah 53. He was the one who died for our sins. 
who died as an atonement for our sins. But then we come to chapter 16. And this is the final piece of Jesus' prediction coming true. Jesus raises from the dead. And Mark tells us that two women go out to the tomb to anoint his body and found that the stone had been rolled away. And they encounter an angel who says this to them in Mark 16, verse 6. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. Again, he kind of mentions Peter specifically. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And with these words, Mark ends. Or does he? Because if you look down at your paper, you probably see more verses after verse 8, where it says that they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So there's a question at the end of Mark, which is one of the more significant questions in, in studying the New Testament, is what are these verses, and how does Mark actually end? And the, the question has to do with different Greek manuscripts that some end in verse 8 and some contain verses 9 through 20. So the question is, did Mark stop at verse 8 or did he also write verses 9 through 20? So nearly all Bibles print verses 9 through 20, but they usually have some sort of distinction from the rest of Mark. Uh, my ESV says, just before it goes into verses 9 through 20, it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. And then it includes the rest of those verses in brackets to kind of show that they're a little bit distinct from the rest of the text. And as my note in the ESV says, the issue about whether these are actually written by Mark or if they were written by someone after Mark has to do with those earliest manuscripts. The earliest manuscripts that we have, were not, they don't include verses 9 through 20. They stop at verse 8. And that's good evidence that that. The, those verses were added after uh, Mark had finished with his gospel. Um, the reason these verses are in your Bible in some form is that the longer ending, and those verses 9 through 20, are included in the vast majority of the manuscripts that we do have. But that's easily explained because it just takes one manuscript that includes those verses to act as the source for many other manuscripts to be copied from, which is how we have all these Greek manuscripts. So they're made of copies of others. And so one that did include this long ending was the source for many, many more copies over the centuries. So just because there are many of them doesn't mean that it was the original. It just means they were all copied off of this one that included it. And the reason that this longer ending came into being is because it seems odd to end with verse 8. It seems really abrupt. It doesn't seem like it wraps up the gospel very well. You never meet Jesus after he's resurrected. It just kind of says that he did. And then it's left without any response of faith from the women. They're just astounded, amazed, fearful. And so the content of this longer ending was added to kind of tie up those loose ends. The verses 9 through 20 include the women telling the disciples what they had uh, seen. It includes Jesus appearing to his disciples. And he gives them the great commission and says they will go out and validate their message. And then it describes Jesus ascending into heaven. So there's a clear explanation for why someone would add these verses to Mark 16, 8. But there isn't really a good reason why someone would chop them off 
if we originally had the longer ending and someone said, no, I think it ends in eight. So there's a good explanation for why someone would add them. There isn't a good explanation for why someone would remove them. And so those two pieces of evidence, first, that the earliest manuscripts don't include it, and second, is that there's a clear reason why someone would add it, but not that someone would take it away, make it almost, almost all scholars and people who have studied this say, yeah, Mark's gospel, when he initially wrote it, ends in verse 8. Uh, everyone agrees to that. So then how should we think about verses 9 through 20? And it's interesting because these verses are not canonical. They're not inspired by God and from the pen of Mark, but that doesn't mean that they're not true. Because it's interesting, as you read through the verses, you, you see almost everything in these verses is uh, described in the other Gospels or in the book of Acts. Um, the only thing that isn't described somewhere else is the, dis- the disciples uh, drinking poison and coming away unscathed, but everything else is described elsewhere. Jesus appearing to Mary and the other disciples, the, the women telling the disciples, Jesus ascending into heaven to the, throne, the right hand of the throne of God, uh, the Great Commission, um, even things like uh, picking up serpents with their hands and coming away without being hurt. We see that in Acts 28. And so while we shouldn't look at this as uh, having the authority as the rest of Scripture so that we shouldn't go out and handle serpents to try to validate our message, as some churches do, we shouldn't look at it as authoritative to command us to do that, but that doesn't mean we can't see it as true. And in fact, it wouldn't surprise me if this was actually uh, early church tradition, that they believed these things that happened. And like we see, many of these are validated in the rest of Scripture. And so it's probably church tradition that was tacked on to the end to say, okay, let's wrap up Mark a little bit more cleanly. But going back to the reason that this the longer ending even exists, has to do with Mark ending really abruptly. Let me read verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 8 again, because it just ends like this. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And it's just over. And so it seems abrupt, and it seems unfinished, but I think that's how Mark has been written. It's been very urgent, it has been very abrupt, and it doesn't seem out of character with how he's written the rest of the gospel. He says Jesus has been raised. He says the first people that uh, found out responded with trembling and astonishment and fear, and that's exactly how people have been responding to the message of Jesus throughout the entire book. It's in line with how Mark has written, and I think that's intentional. I think Mark ends his gospel this way to grab your attention and challenge us to respond He gives us one more example of how people have responded to Jesus and says, okay, now what are you going to do? I'm not going to tie this up nicely and and send you on your way being warmed and filled. I want you to be abruptly struck by who Jesus is. This is the final piece of the puzzle that Jesus has raised from the dead. What are you going to do about it? You should be amazed and fearful and trembling. And as Jesus has been saying throughout the entire book, you should believe in him and repent of your sins. So this abrupt ending is actually a device by Mark to grab our attention and challenge us to respond. And because of this, Mark is a really effective evangelistic tool for believers. This is a great story to go through and walk someone through and say, okay, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark presents Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, 
and as the suffering servant. And you can see how he demonstrates that up through the middle of the book. And then, wow, his disciple finally got it. And he said, this is the Messiah. And then he starts telling them about how he's going to suffer and die on the cross. And then it happens. But then he raises from the dead, just as he said. And now it's up to you. How are you going to respond to this? And so Mark is a really effective evangelistic tool for us today to be able to walk through with unbelievers. So I would encourage you guys to use it in that way. So that's all I have. I'm not like Mark in ending exactly abruptly like he does. But I just want to challenge you guys to um, use this book in an evangelistic way. And and in addition, um, if you guys are looking for more resources on Mark, there is a 72-part sermon series on our website preached by Pastor J.D., um, who handled this in a very non-urgent manner, I guess you could say. (laughs) Um, But that allows him to get much more in-depth and in detail on all of the book of Mark. So what I taught in just a couple minutes today does not do justice to the book of Mark, and his sermon series does. So I would encourage you guys to go listen to that if you're interested in more. So thank you.